I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. A lot of very big news from Hilo HQ today. Firstly, we have a very exciting episode for you today. Graham Norton is coming on to chat to us about his new book, Homestretch. And this will be our last ever author special because... Oh, it's taken all my strength to say this, Panda. We knew that this was going to be an emotional intro because next week will be the last ever episode of The Hilo. Do you think we released to the listeners how many times it took for you to get that <laughs> sentence out? <laughs> I might make a little compilation. It is. This This is the penultimate episode of The Hilo. It is such an emotional one for us, but also just filled with such joy and pride. We should probably mention, shouldn't we, Dol, that this isn't actually an abrupt decision. We decided this 18 months ago. We just had in our heads that four years feels like Mm. the perfect time to end. We haven't had some massive Barney over who wears what red sequins for the Christmas picture. We decided it. <laughs> so we decided. Can you imagine it. if that was the last straw? <laughs> it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, Dolly wanted the brighter red sequins, um, and so we just decided we couldn't go on. No, we. Yeah, it was last summer, wasn't it, Dolly? So yeah. it, we've had all this time to get our heads round the lifespan of it. And honestly, if truth be told, I don't think I thought it would be able to go for four years. I've, it's been such an enormous privilege it has I mean I'll save the bulk of the squishy stuff for next week but yeah it's changed my life it's been the longest job I've ever had and it has it has changed my life there's no other way to put it you and me both and as Panda said we will save all the big the big squishy stuff for next week but in short the four years that we've been doing this have covered a really important time in both of our lives in terms of really exciting things happening for us and really, really sad things happening and challenging things and formative things. And it's all been in this in this chapter of us talking to each other and talking to you every week. We've had house moves, books, babies, haircuts. We've had haircuts. We've had haircuts, we've had heartbreak. Haircuts and heartbreak. That's what we should have called it. Haircuts and heartbreak. (laughs) It's been big. It's been the biggest, biggest four years of our lives. And it's a pretty magic thing. It's like a big, big emotional time for us to end this. But But we just know that it is completely the right time to end it because we want to go on a high. We want to 
exit while things are still thriving for this. Do you know what I keep thinking of is that Nelly Furtado song. Doesn't she I'm sing like about... a bird? Which one? Doesn't she sing about... Oh, no, she sings, Why Must All Good Things Come to an End? Okay, yeah, no, that doesn't work, does it? I thought she sang, <laughs> All Good Things Must Come to an End. No, that would be really bad songwriting. And, and this is why I said Pandora and we were planning the last stretch of the Hilo's episodes and events that I will be the musical supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> you will definitely be the musical supervisor. We will be doing a big Hilo goodbye episode next week where we will get really squishy. We'll be celebrating the Hilo archive, talking about how it came to be, our favourite moments, maybe a few behind the scenes. We will need you, our listeners, to help us make this episode because we want to hear from you. We want to hear your stories that relate to the Hilo. We want to hear your memories of the Hilo, your favorite moments, your favorite episodes. We want to really hear from you in terms of doing a big nostalgic celebration of the last four years. So please do email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com. If you can send all of that in by Sunday, we will try and make sure that we include it in the episode. There will be booze, there will be tears. Can we drink margaritas if there's booze? One hundred percent. I've never made one and I dream of them every night. And believe it or not, that is still not the biggest news. The biggest news is, drumroll panda, we are doing one final live show in aid of Blood Cancer UK on December the 8th. It will be a Christmas-themed extravaganza. Sadly, for pandemic reasons, it will not be live. But this is no Zoom event. Nuh-uh-uh. It will be beautifully filmed. Nuh-uh. <laughs> I want to make it so clear that this is not going to be all just like fuzzy heads floating about on a pixelated screen. This is going to be big, beautiful and camp as hell. And the logistics of it, trying to organise an event during a pandemic, like hats off to anyone who works in events. The live Christmas show will be beautifully filmed with the help of Fane Productions and streamed live on Vimeo. We have partnered with the wonderful eco-friendly cleaning brand Method, whose pink grapefruit cleaning spray is just quite frankly divine, to make all of this possible to be able to bring you the Christmas show. And Dolly has also booked, may I say, possibly the best, most nostalgic joyous surprise ever that we're going to save for you booking info will be on our social media and also in the show notes and our bios and everywhere possible get it while it's hot i'm gonna level with you listeners pandora and i are desperate to make a shit ton of money for blood cancer uk it's a charity that means a lot to both of us pandora and i have both lost loved ones to leukemia in recent years so if you have enjoyed the Hilo over the last few years, we beg of you to be as generous as possible for this cause that, that means a huge amount to us. Yeah, our Christmas show will be camp and ridiculous as hell, but it is also very much in memory of Florence Kleiner and Enzo Saunt. So um, it's really, really special for us and it will be hopefully a beautiful note to end on. So on with today's episode. Many joyous things to celebrate this week from our listeners. God, I'm going to miss you. Most of you. <laughs> <laughs> All of you. All of you. So news from our listeners. 
Uh, we have had a pair of bats named after us. Baby spectacled flying foxes at the Tolga Bat Orphanage in Australia. Thank you so much to Harriet. I shared some pictures of these on my Instagram because I just could not get over how cute they are. I think you're cuter because you've got giant eyes, but I'm quite snuggly. Oh, you're so snuggly. I think they are adorable. Who knew that bats were just so cute? No, I, I mean, I didn't know bats were cute. I'm, I'm going to level back with you. I, I've got to be honest, I thought b- bats were pretty revolting. But seeing them curled up like bat burritos waiting to be fed. <laughs> I think anything in a burrito looks cute. And mm, I don't actually, yeah, I mean, there are some people that even in a burrito waiting to get fed wouldn't look cute. But animals. That video, that video that you sent me of my godson a couple of nights ago, he was full burrito in that. <laughs> he is a he is an absolute bush baby burrito wriggling along the along the floor in his little burrito get up oh god oh yeah those I sleeping couldn't... bags that babies wear yeah they're so funny now my mum's like what what are these things that children wear now because they don't have blankets now they sleep in those sleeping bags so that they don't get you know blankets over their head or kick it off or they anything. are so cute i can't he just looked like a little caterpillar <laughs> they do look like caterpillars. Letty Butler, who we mentioned last week as being completely wonderful in the very Christmas advert, tweeted us to tell us that she got so excited hearing us talk about her role that she put Shoals foot cream on her face. <laughs> we also had a couple of people write in to ask why we didn't talk about the Sainsbury's ad. I'm really annoyed I forgot that one. It's a lovely scene of a family enjoying a Christmas meal. Someone wrote in to give us some rather lovely info about the Disney ad, which is a granny and granddaughter and a Mickey Mouse toy. The ad, our listener writes, is based on the Filipino Christmas traditions and the hanging of the star lanterns, parole, is seen all around the Philippines and making them is part of the Christmas tradition. And the card addressed to Lola means grandmother in Tagalog. I love that email. Our listener wrote, as someone who's never cried at any Christmas advert, I wept at this. I'm half Filipino, half English, and I'd never seen any representation of myself or some of my culture outside of the Philippines. And I really liked hearing the viewpoint from a listener called Amy about the Maggie Hambling statue of Mary Wollstonecraft that has not had the best response since it was unveiled a few weeks ago in East London. But Amy writes with a different point of view. When I think about this piece, I think about the huge tidal creative mass this woman is negotiating. Void of corset or clothing, she looks like a generic woman. But this figure is existing with this furious cascade of form beneath her. Whether she's conquering it, is riding it or controlling it depends on the mood I'm in when I'm observing it. A woman with a book in hand wearing a bonnet is never going to speak to me. A female form resiliently at the top can be whatever I strive for it to be. And with a big bush, I bloody love it. Oh, that's really lovely to hear such a passionate response in support of the statue. And I have to say, I love a furious cascade of form. Do you ever feel like a furious cascade of form, Dolly? Uh, No, I just feel like a piece of ham with eyes (laughs) flapping about in the wind most of the time. What type of ham? Wafer? <laughs> uh, just, just a luncheon meat. Just a, a deli meat. A cheap deli meat. Um, <laughs> moving on. I've also collected some news stories for you this week. And as usual, I'm stretching the meaning of the word news to breaking point because why break the <laughs> habit of half a decade? <laughs> a group of lads were caught boozing 
inside Dublin Airport without boarding a flight. Have you heard about this? No, but I like the way you say a group of lads like you're about 73. Carry on. (laughs) I may or may not have copied that from the Sun's headline. The group bought a flight for €9.99 in order to bypass security and go for pints in the airport bar. So... They wanted to go to the pub so much, they realised that if they got, if they bought a flight, but so they could just have access to, to the airport. Oh my God, that's such a ludicrous loophole. I know. <laughs> God. I know. It's I mean, life. a lot of people are very angry at them, apparently. Yeah. In response. I, I, and I, 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 do un- I do understand. I do understand. I do understand. I also don't applaud their creativity but it's it is you know as far as loophole finding goes it's pretty maverick it's a commitment i also have a brilliant complaint to a newspaper to read to you panda and actually i can't believe in all our years of the high low we've never delved into newspaper reader complaints love them okay well five quid to you if you can guess in one which newspaper this was printed in. Sir, as staunch royalists, my wife and I decided to watch the new series of The Crown so that we could pick away at its inaccuracies and untruths. (laughs) However, despite the ample warnings in the press, we were unprepared for the depth of injustice on display, particularly towards Prince Charles. The show's portrayal of his fishing technique was utterly unjustifiable. To imagine that any self-respecting fisherman would allow his line to touch down so catastrophically is bad enough. But to then suggest such a cast could possibly result in the landing of a fine salmon is tantamount to gross and criminal negligence. Never has a television series managed to lose all credibility with such aplomb. Dominic Witherow, Woking, Surrey. We absolutely missed a trick not having this as a segment. Okay, I know. I think it's The Telegraph. Five quid to the bug-eyed bat in the corner. Yay! (laughs) Loved that. Thank you very much. And a headline gaffe that resurfaced this week. I think it was printed at the beginning of lockdown. Uh, Reminds us all of the importance of checking for typos, even when it's just one letter. So Kent Online News tweeted, while we can still enjoy a nice stroll at a safe distance, here are some of the best open places to take a wank in Kent. Oh my God. (laughs) And finally, the biggest news of this week, the only words on anyone's lips, Gemma Collins has launched a sparkling gin liqueur. Flagingo Gemma Collins, yes, that's its name, rolls (laughs) off the tongue, is a kiwi and lime flavoured gin liqueur and officially launched this week. Botanicals used in the gin liqueur include juniper and forest fruits. Collins said, I am so happy to have created my first ever gin liqueur. We're talking a bold and sparkly, worthy of any diva. The Flagingo Gemma Collins is a true representation of me, the GC, and staying true to my fabulous self. Flagingo? <laughs> what does it... That's not presumably just flagingo. Com- but that's presumably a compound word, but what does it cut? Fla... Flamboyant. What's the jinga? Is it meant to be flamingo? I think. I think there might be a but flamingo. What's the, on the J? Oh, gin. 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 F- but it's not called flagingo. It's called flagingo Gemma Collins. <laughs> I think she's missed a trick because a Tom Collins is such a classic cocktail. So I think she should have just been like a Gemma Collins. 
Wow, have you seen who makes Flagingo? No, who makes Flagingo? They're called Zimagorium. So it actually comes up as Zimagorium Flagingo. <laughs> it sounds like someone in Harry Potter, doesn't it? <laughs> Zagorium Flagingo. <laughs> That's exactly what it sounds like. Anyway, I actually think it sounds quite delicious, so I might try and get us a bottle for next week. Yeah, get us a bottle for next week. That's exactly what we should drink. I can think of nothing more appropriate for the last ever episode of the Hilo than a flagingo on ice. A flagingo on the rocks. Job done. Can you imagine what would happen if you went into a bar? I'm going to do like a snog, married, avoid bunch of news stories for you. Okay. In the avoid category, this only very loosely works if it works at all. So bear with. In the avoid category, a new equalities minister, Jessica Butcher, has been appointed. And it turns out, which is great for an equalities minister, she is a critic of gender pay gaps. Apparently, a woman earning 81p to a man's £1 is uh, down to the choice women make when they have children. They choose to stay home with them and that's how, uh, you know, they get behind and... Uh, they're not supported. That is, of course, a choice that some women make. But to completely cast aside the context within which those choices are made by women is just so disappointing. I feel like we're in 1996. And if we are, mm. can we have some of the fun bits of 1996 back? I want to be in 1996 for the Buffalo Trainers and the White Wine Spritzers. Totally. Also in my avoid category this week. I like that you're inventing a whole new format the week before we end, by the way. It's better late than uh, never, Dolly. Um, there has been a huge leak of thousands of explicit photos and videos of Irish women which have been shared on public forums without their consent. I know this is a bit heavy in an episode where it's our penultimate episode and we're talking about lots of silly things, but a lot of people wrote in about this. A lot of women who were really upset that it hadn't been covered more on the news. And you know what? I'm with them. I think mm. it's as terrifying that this is happening as it is that this isn't making fourth page news. Instead, our new Equalities Commissioner is making headlines talking about how Me Too damages men. This should be making headlines. Among the mega files is understood to be content related to minors as well as revenge porn. The pandemic and subsequent lockdowns have seen image-based sexual violence spike with the UK revenge porn hotline seeing cases rise by 22% in 2020. So this is a big issue and it's not going away. It's getting worse. Horrifying. In my married category, okay, this no longer works, but it has been a long-term story like some marriages. Okay, I'm just going to have to park it, aren't I? It's, there's a, it's a little bit, there's a little bit something broken at the at the core of this format, but I'm glad we workshopped it. In the uh, it's, bit, it's, it's a bit, bit like me then, really. Um, Wagatha Christie <laughs> is currently at court. Rebecca Vardy has won the first stage of her defamation action against Colleen Rooney in which she claimed she suffered extreme distress, hurt, anxiety and embarrassment at being accused of leaking stories of Colleen via social media. This definitely marks a new precedent, doesn't it? Defamation via social media. Yeah, totally. Like what other celebrity defamation cases could we see going to court? after this kind of off point but I do really enjoy that when that story broke even on BBC News Wagatha Christie is now the formal way of describing in terms of news sources Wagatha Christie has has come into official parlance for describing that particular case 
Oh, I thought you meant it was going to become like the word you used for dissing someone on. Well, maybe it will be. Maybe. Maybe it will become like catfishing. Yeah. Mm, I don't know if it totally works, but yeah. Anyway, in my snog category. Enjoying the commitment to this? But you definitely will because it's animal related. I have some joyous news about an elephant. After a 12-hour effort by more than 50 forest officials in India's southern Tamil Nadu state, an elephant was pulled out of a well, feet first, after falling 50 foot down it. I've sent you a little video. Oof. That is full on, that video. Such a good effort, isn't it? Not the first time it's Such happened, Such a apparently. good effort. Oh, really? Elephants have fallen down wells before. 50 feet does seem very deep, though, so I think that is a pretty stellar effort because they're not lifting out like a pail of water no he's a, he's a big boy i was busy giving a running commentary of uh the newspapers in bed on sunday night and i didn't realize that my husband had fallen asleep while i was doing this which yes speaks volumes of how interesting my summary is of what's going on and I woke him up when I squealed about the elephant and he said, this better be good, you just woke me up. And I told him about the elephant and he agreed that it was good and then he went back to sleep with a smile on his face. So it's worth waking up anyone oh, for that story. Oh, very cute. Very, very cute. I want to draw your attention, Dol, to an interview that made me laugh out loud with Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. Obviously loved it. off the fact that Changing Rooms is coming back. I loved this interview. Adored it. <laughs> what was your favourite bit about it? I liked when he said he just he couldn't believe how much he got away with. <laughs> he kept making um, rooms and houses more and more hideous to see if he'd get fired. I liked the way he talked to the journalist who interviewed him, Chris Godfrey, about his flat. He showed him his flat and said, you know, can you think of anything I should do with it? And uh, Lawrence said, it might sound a bit extreme, but arson is a good starting point. <laughs> He then goes on to explain to Lawrence that his, he lives in a rented flat with his boyfriend and they've both got competing tastes and limited interest in furnishings. Let me tell you, no one is winning, he says deadpan. He does offer advice though. Some sensible, bookcases need to be dark to show off their contents. Some questionable, I apparently need a denim blue feature wall. <laughs> and some just bizarre, replace the curtains and make our own out of grey blankets. Could not believe that. I could not get my head around that. And he also, I was really interested to read that he's doing a show called My Lottery Dream Home International, where he helps lottery winners find and decorate new homes. That's niche, isn't it? It's actually a great premise, though. Totally. And he can really go wild. Yeah, and also imagine how overwhelming it would be to have this very sudden and very endless dispensable wealth. Like an extreme, extreme amount of disposable cash just available to you. How would that alter your taste? How would that alter the kind of home you wanted to live in? I think it's a great idea. And he's there to make sure you have the necessary flamboyance of a big win. Him talking about getting the gig for Changing Rooms in 1996. God, I killed to watch those old episodes. Do you think we can watch them anywhere? I think there are a lot of kind of best bits on, on YouTube. YouTube. So he talks about getting hired in 1996 by Anne Booth Clibben and Peter Balzaghetti. And they rung him up after he did like a, he did a tester, I think, where he was meant to make over an Ikea bookshelf and instead turned it into a sort of, he says, Gaudi's sacred family cathedral. And so he received a call from them. <laughs> they said that my name was foolish, that I looked a fright in those leather trousers, those flappy cuffs and that velvet jacket. I was haughty. 
I didn't listen to what people said and I was perfect. Could I start on Monday? <laughs> My favourite line, Doll, is when he talks about how people over the years, many times over the years, he said at one point he had to go on to GMTV every single morning to say that he wasn't, is how people accused him of being secretly gay. And he notes that being called secretly minimalist would be a lot worse. <laughs> Well, speaking of 90s and early noughties entertainment, boy, have I got a find for you. So, Panda, I'm about to send you an email with a link to a house on Right Move. Can you tell me what house you think that might be? Uh, something's obviously been recorded here, hasn't it? What's been recorded? Is it a goggle box home? How would you describe it? It's like a red brick, very chocolate box, cottage with low beams inside. I think it's Tudor. Yes. It's got, I think it's Tudor. Any idea? Okay. <laughs> no, I can only think that it would be Gogglebox. So, you're going to kick yourself. A little tale for you. I've been doing Sober November. It's gone very well. Is that a phrase? Don't know. Two weeks in on Saturday, I was feeling so good, I decided to celebrate it by having some martinis. Mixed some homemade martinis. Settled in for a Vicar of Dibley marathon. Ah, nice. So it's Vicar of Dibley. And slightly pissed on my third cocktail because my tolerance has now lowered to nothing with two weeks off the sauce. So I did what I always do when I'm drunk and enjoying the location of a TV show or film, which is I log on to Right Move and see all the houses for sale in the area and just go into a fantasy parallel life where I'm a fictional character waking up in that location every day. And what did I find? Geraldine Granger's cottages for sale. When you do your your drunken shimmy through right mood, mm. do you imagine yourself being friends with, oh, I'd have a cup of tea with Claire in that house. Yeah. And then I'd pop round to Tom's and we'd do some golf in the garden. Yeah. The fantasy knows no bounds. And I think it's so, people are so divided on this because I've been doing this for like 10 years, I think. Loads of people do it, I think, don't they? Yeah, some people don't get it. I think some people just think it's a waste of time or they think it's an exercise of torture or, you know. <laughs> I can see, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I just really like it. I just, the journalist Sophie Hayward and I would say it's like the bedrock of our relationship that for the last 10 years, we just constantly send each other houses and flats and sometimes even parking spaces and garages from all around the world imagining all our various fantasy lives and parallel lives sometimes even parking spaces <laughs> i love that now did you know that for the first time ever the oed have now listen i feel a bit sad about this the oed have not picked a word of the year oh no why that's normally a big day in the high-low calendar. Yeah. It's an absolute high-low staple. We've got a lot of mileage out of the word of the year over the last four years. But I think it just really shows that this year has gone to shit if the OED can't pick its word of the year. But have they said why? Well, they say that in a year that has made us speechless, a year which cannot be neatly accommodated in one single word, they've instead chosen to expand their annual selection so okay. they haven't chosen one word but they've added in lots of new ones like what have they added in zoom surely lockdown obviously obviously i don't think i really knew what lockdown was before this year 
They say, which is interesting, that what was genuinely unprecedented this year, are they using that word to sort of troll us, was the <laughs> hyperspeed at which the English-speaking world amassed a new collective vocabulary relating to the coronavirus mm. and how quickly it became, in many instances, a core part of the language. Mm. So true, isn't it? Yeah. We did incredibly quickly just become accustomed to this whole new vernacular around health. It does just show how protean language is it just became this collective adoption of like loads of new terms that overnight everyone was using it's it's kind of amazing there are still some that i read and i'm not entirely sure what they mean i think it's quite hard to stay on top of all of the language slight gear change i have found myself extremely into celtic christian music this week particularly that the work is rogue well, listen to this one. I'm going to play it to you. Hold on. is lush i feel like i could curl up and have a little nap right now listening to that i listen to it with my eyes closed and i feel i feel like the world moving through me it's a really lovely listening experience i really recommend it's beautiful their work yeah so exactly take that back sister it's very good not rogue at all brilliant recommendation that was a track called May It Be. I think it could be the soundtrack of an, a film set in maybe the early 19th century where a woman is giving birth to her child and her husband, who they thought had died in a war, not sure what war would have happened then, comes through the farm door to see them both and this music would play over her screaming and pushing a baby out into the hay as the horse nearby stamps its foot and then the husband comes rushing back dishevelled and handsome. What do you reckon? Commissioned. Greenlit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sold. It's a, fl a flimsy premise for a project. I also wanted to tell you about a book called Wintering by Catherine May, which I thought, given this time of year and the year we've had, might resonate with some of our listeners. So the winter that Catherine writes of is a psychological one which chimes with the natural climate. She wrote it when she was navigating some personal difficulties. Her husband was very ill. Her son was miserable at school. She quit her job because her work-life balance was off and she had prolonged, unexplained stomach pain. And she looks into the idea that a fallow period of rest and focus is essential for humans to enjoy happier springs. And I suppose at the most basic level, it's just a new way of looking at this idea of life as something cyclical of peaks and mm. troughs of happiness mm. and sadnesses and successes and failures. But I really like the way she attaches it to seasons. It's, I think, part of this bigger idea that we're seeing a lot more now in in 
literature of people trying to connect with nature. I think that's why Raina wins the salt path was so successful. You know, this massive journey that her and her husband Moth took. And I, I like the way that Catherine writes about the human condition being more attached to nature than we think. Here's, here's how explaining the concept of wintering early in the book. Everyone winters at one time or another, some winter over and over again. Wintering is a season in the cold. It is a fallow period in life when you're cut off from the world, feeling rejected, sidelined, blocked from progress or cast into the role of an outsider. Perhaps it results from illness, perhaps from a life event such as a bereavement or the birth of a child. Perhaps it comes from a humiliation or failure. Perhaps you're in a period of transition and have temporarily fallen between two worlds. Some winterings creep upon us more slowly, accompanying the protracted death of a relationship, the gradual ratcheting up of caring responsibilities as our parents age, the drip, drip, drip of lost confidence. Some are appallingly sudden, like discovering one day that your skills are considered obsolete, the company you worked for has gone bankrupt, or your partner is in love with someone new. However it arrives, wintering is usually involuntary, lonely and deeply painful, yet it's also inevitable. Oh, I love that and I think connection to seasons and our relationships to seasons have changed so dramatically this year. I mean, it's, it's kind of hack to say now because so many people have, have commented on it, but for so many different reasons, I just feel like this year is so difficult for me to grasp in terms of what I've done and how I've moved through it and what has happened at different points. And I find it really, for the first time in my life, when I look back on this last year, I don't have any sort of retrospective clarity on it. I can barely remember one month to the next. And I think the one thing that I can say has helped distinguish the various periods of time in 2020 has been the color of leaves, the the warmth or the or the chill of the air, you know, the flowers that bloom, the branches that you see. It's uh it's like the kind of the clock hands of nature isn't it it's the it's the it's it i have really clung to to that to that proof of time yeah that's why i think that her concept of wintering is so helpful for now because it's that sameness that mm. non-endingness and also people's inability to prepare it's not like you know we had months to prepare for this year and that's what she says is one of the toughest things about wintering and she looks which I found really interesting she looks at countries who have tough long winters and how they prepare for them and she wonders if it's something that we can try and take on perhaps more psychologically so for example in mm. Finland they have I'm going to pronounce this wrong they have Talvitalat. Uh, there's no direct English translation for that, but it basically means being stored away for winter. And it starts in July with house repairs being done because they're too cold to do in a Finnish winter, clothes bought as lots of shops shut, the preparation of firewood so that you don't run out at a crucial time, baking to fill up the freezer in case you get snowed in or you have guests. A very important part apparently is feeding guests during a long, gloomy winter. And what Catherine says is that if you have a better idea of when this fallow period, um, kind of personally, obviously she's talking about something collectively, but personally is coming or perhaps is needed, 
like when she said she needed, you know, to step away from her job or, or something like that, then you can prepare for it and you can let it move through you rather than denying it or trying to stave it off. Yeah, and and having a grasp of its beginning, middle and end and what is next in the cycle. Yeah, because we don't deny seasons. You don't walk outside and say, I- I'm not ready for autumn today, so leaves, can you go back to green? You know, you they, they move through us regardless of what we do. So I suppose that there's, it's not relinquishing because that would be quite frustrating if it was just that, I think, this idea of like, oh, you just surrender to it. And, you know, it, it's more like how how to accept it and mitigate it at the same time which is quite a powerful combination she looks at the idea of worship and how that marks spots in the calendar that people who are religious have to look forward to and she discusses druidism not because she wants to be a druid but because she thinks that the fact that they have a celebration every six weeks might be quite a good way to live it marks the passing of time and it means that you always have something communal to look forward to I love that idea because not only is that celebrating the velocity of nature but it's also celebrating the very fact of being here of being here for another phase of being on this planet to enjoy another phase of the cycle that sounds very rudimentary but I think that's like such a replenishing thing to do and I think what she suggests as well with this kind of with looking at you know druidism is that it can just be something as simple as having a big family meal every six weeks or doing something that kind of reflects on that last six weeks and the next six weeks. I don't know why I feel like six weeks is a really good space of time as well. Support for the high low comes from Spotlight Oral Care. Spotlight Oral Care is created by dentists to improve your oral care. As we get older, many of us realise that it's so important for overall health to use specific products for oral care needs and Spotlight Oral Care has got you covered. Hero products include the Sonic toothbrush and teeth whitening strips loved by celebrities and famous smiles around the world. I am historically extremely nervous of whitening products after one disastrous attempt 10 years ago which left me with the world's most sensitive teeth. Even a cool breeze would make me weep. So it was with a great amount of trepidation that I recently tried one of Spotlight Oral Care strips and hurrah, no sensitivity. From their clean ingredients and PETA approval to biodegradable packaging, you can rest assured when you invest in a Spotlight Oral Care Essential, it's doing good for the planet too. Help make smiles happen this Christmas with Spotlight Oral Care's range of gifting options on spotlightoralcare.com, which are available to ship globally. Thank you very much to Spotlight Oral Care. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This week's author special, our last ever one, 
is with the one and only Graham Norton. We are both huge fans of Graham. I think we might have saved the best till last here. Graham Norton is a comedian, presenter and writer, best known for The Graham Norton Show on BBC One, his Radio 2 show on Saturday, which he is soon to leave in order to present on Virgin Radio, and his three novels, Holding, A Keeper, and now his new one, Home Stretch. Graham, welcome to the Hilo. Well, no, thanks for asking me because I know you're you're one of the hot, the hot favourites. So uh, it's very nice <laughs> to be included. Your novels never fail to make me weep, and Home Stretch is no different. Because I feel very crass summing up someone else's novel for them in front of them. Would you give our listeners a praise of what Home Stretch is about? Well, it starts in kind of a, a, a very dark place in that it starts with a car crash. And it's one of those car crashes that you often hear about a group of young people in a car, too many people in the car, being stupid. And uh, three of them die and three survive. And one of the survivors, as is often the case, is the driver. And I used to hear about these in Ireland and it really bugged me. I go, what happens to that person? What happens to the person driving the car? How do you go on with your life when you're just a kid? Your life hasn't begun yet. And yet you're stuck in this town where everyone knows what you did. What shape is your life after that? How do you live with that shadow? And so that was the starting point. And I follow that character from 1987 when the crash happens right up to 2019. And we see the kind of arc of his life. And then by accident, you also see a kind of arc of Ireland and what's happened to Ireland in that time. And that was sort of, I didn't plan that. It's sort of a happy accident. But it kind of gives the book a bit more welly than I think it was going to have. <laughs> going to have. It has depth. It has depth, ladies. Um, unexpected depth that I didn't think it would have. Well, what is so brilliant about Homestretch is that it's got lots of depth and it's very profound, particularly the way that you write about family and trauma and sexuality. I think Marianne Keyes nailed it when she said that you write so brilliantly about longing and loneliness. But there is such an accessibility to your writing. Is it important for you that you distill these big ideas into books in a way that reaches as many readers as possible? Well... I don't know about you, but when I read, I want story. That's prime, like that's my absolute primary thing. When I go into a book, what is this story? Why am I reading this story? And, you know, it doesn't matter how beautiful a sentence is. I could admire it. I could admire the description of the landscape, the weather, the emotion. But unless there's a, a narrative to drag me along, I find it very hard to kind of bond with a book. So that's kind of my primary thing. I I, I, I start with story. I wanted to have, a, I wanted to be a yarn more than anything else. And then everything else kind of comes on top of that. So, you know, as part of that yarn, there's an unhappy marriage. Then you explore those things. Um, somebody fleeing Ireland because of their sexuality or because of shame. Then you're exploring that. Um, it, it, Everything else is kind of secondary for me to the to the plot. But happily, uh, most plots end up, you know, reflecting other things and people's emotions. And, you know, I think if it's just plot, then <laughs> it's it's a it's a bit dry. But um, but by filling it out, hopefully you kind of reflect other people's lives. You make that sound so straightforward, but it's really hard to write a jolly good yarn. And I think that you absolutely managed to um, 
intertwine those as as Dolly was saying those really poignant ideas with those kind of smaller observations but you you mentioned it just then that the the main character of Connor is a young Irish boy who's who's long realized he's gay and thinks that this is something he could never talk to his parents about and it's a really devastating section where you write about it you say his mother Chrissy had been listening to a mother on the radio expressing her pride in her gay son well she's a stronger woman than I am I don't think I could ever love a child like that Connor knew that his parents weren't monsters the world they lived in belonged to them and he was the one at fault in your acknowledgements, you write that you are profoundly thankful to all the people who stayed in Ireland to fight for the modern tolerant country it's become, instead of taking, as you put it, the easy way out by leaving to find places where you could find yourself. And I wondered how much of your own experience informed writing the book or the character of Connor? I mean, quite a bit of my own experience is kind of in there in that, you know, growing up in Ireland, in fact, I'm even older than Connor. So I left in 83, really. Um, so in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, there were, um, there was a kind of a, a gay presence, you know, occasionally they'd appear on the Late Late Show on RTE, on the chat show. And, it, and because no one knew a gay person, you know, they were so other you could discuss them in that kind of dismissive way, kind of like, oh, like, wouldn't that be awful to not be, you know, I, in, in inverted commas, normal. And, and people don't understand, I think, how much damage that does to a psyche, the amount of kind of internalized um, loathing and homophobia that it's kind of built up. And I think later in the book, um, uh, Connor meets an older uh, gay guy and they're, they're you know, they're, he, he's discussing about that not going home and how his parents wouldn't love him. And just that idea that it's never, in a way, it's not about uh, your fear that your parents won't love you. It's, it, I mean, it's proper RuPaul time, but it is that you don't love yourself. It's that you, <laughs> how could my parents love me now? Because I don't love me um you know i i judge myself harshly i feel badly about myself and uh, do you know panty bliss the uh, the drag queen in ireland have you ever come across panty bliss no i love that name though yeah, me too and um, panty bliss gave this talk um about homophobia and it was basically her kind of riff in it was we're all a little bit homophobic and 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 she talked brilliantly about that internalized homophobia we all have and hopefully that is less now hopefully that is going away you know because now not every gay person you see on television is i either holding a placard or in a drama is the murder victim or the murderer or you know, mm. something terrible has happened to them. You know, there, there was very little. I remember I bought a book called The Other Persuasion, and it was an anthology of kind of literary gay short stories. And it was, you know, Ian Foster and, you know, Gore Vidal, all these things. And, I mean, it was so depressing. Every single story, just something awful happens. It's all, you know, suicide, there's rape, sex abuse, you know, it was not a, a, a book you read thinking, yippee, I get to be gay. It was a book you read thinking, oh no, this is going to be awful. Um, so hopefully that has changed, um, you know, 
I don't know many young people, but hope <laughs> the the plan is that their lives are better and they have you know more hope out there and more kind of opportunities and they they feel less kind of judged and hemmed in by just their sexuality. The fact that your experience informed some of this story and informed uh, some of the character of Connor was it challenging to reflect on some of those earlier memories? Um. Not really, because I think the world has changed so much. And I think I personally am in a better place now than I was. So uh, I, I think in a way you, you can reflect. It's it's almost kind of that, a, a kind of a weird sort of nostalgia about how awful everything was, that kind of Angela Ashes <laughs> thing. And it was mm. always raining. Um, you, you can you can sort of revel in how dark and grim it was because things have changed. I mean, I, I you know, as I said, Ireland has changed. And uh, so I think, you know, that's probably how I could write this book now. I think if I was in it, I wouldn't have had, I, I wouldn't have been able to describe it in the way that I have. Seeing as we're interviewing you, Graham, I hope you'll agree that it would be churlish of us to call this segment anything other than Grill Graham, which <laughs> is, of course, a beloved segment of your Radio 2 show where listeners write in with their problems for you and other listeners to solve. I've looked forward to Grill Graham every Saturday morning for years. It was my favourite part of the weekend. What have been your favourite Grill Graham questions over the years? Ooh, um, I like the. I either like them to go uh, so they're so stupid that you just get annoyed by the person who's written in. You just kind of think, really, that that in the mm. in the world we live in, that's the thing <laughs> that motivated you to write in to ask for advice. So I like those ones. The kind of you know, uh, my kitchen cupboard handles are funny or something, um, and then I like the really devastating ones you know I, I remember one week we got um uh, a woman who had she'd be you know she had a, a terminal diagnosis she was going to die and she was looking wow. advice uh, looking for advice about sort of telling her children and also about spending time with her children in the time that she'd left now this raises one big question why on earth would you ask me and maria <laughs> <laughs> for advice on that um but but also it was just it what i loved about it wasn't that we got to give advice it was the outpouring of mm. support from the radio two listeners who are by and large a very nice bunch so they you know that and i you know I, I was reading out the replies from people people who'd been through similar things who you know, they'd been the children of people who died or they were also going through a similar thing and what they were planning to do. And, I, you know, I'm reading out these things and I'm just sobbing on the radio. So those are the ones I like. I like the really, really sad ones or the kind of stupid flippity gibbet kind of, you know, my friend stole my stencil or something really, <laughs> really random and pointless. Do you ever get nervous with your agony uncling? And actually, Dolly, you as an agony aunt for the Sunday Times, do you ever feel like, oh, God, this is beyond my remit. Well, I think, I don't know about you, Dolly, but I find I'm I'm willing to wade in and give it a go about anything so long as I feel like I have covered my ass and said, look, I'm not qualified. You do need to seek medical help. You do need to talk to a counsellor. You do need to get a lawyer. You, you know, you, 
that I'm I'm just going to give you my view of this. But actually, to move forward, you you can't just kind of mull over what the guy said. Because I, I did the Telegraph for a long time. And, you know, because on the radio, it's kind of, it's far more kind of, throw away and I think also Radio 2 are much more uh, concerned about you know duty of care and um, illegal ramifications of our advice so they really weed out any problems that might be like that but on the Telegraph you know I got the real gamut of stuff and so I had to I had to be really careful but at the same time I never said no you know my editor used to send me the letters he chose and I never rejected one I always said yes. What about you? Do you ever mm. kind of turn them down? No, I haven't so far. But I think the important thing is is that people do want your 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 gut instinct uh, on something. And while it's important to have your gut instinct, you also just have to have peripheral vision of the three sixty view. You've got to touch on the upside of this, the downside of this, people would argue this because of this and they would argue this because of that. And I think as long as you do that and you're not so singular in your advice, then it yes. feels like it, it's safer. And sometimes I think your job is really to, in a calm, measured way, try to empathise with the other person or the other party in the problem. Exactly, and kind of go, exactly. Look they're not trying to hurt you. They're just protecting themselves. You know, that sort of stuff. And I think that's important because if those two people talk, then it escalates so fast and suddenly they're screaming at each other and there's red wine everywhere and it's bad. So (laughs) also, don't you think, I always think with people writing letters to agony aunts and uncles, that really the bit of self-help that's gone on is writing the letter. That's the thing. Um, Yeah. and I found that with problems in my life where if you write them down, suddenly you've you've quantified them, you know, and, and you can see, oh, actually, I just need to fix this bit. If I fix paragraph two, <laughs> paragraphs three and four aren't a problem anymore. And, you know, I can think about one another day. And I think that's in in the end, really, they've given themselves the advice before they post the letter, before they email the yes. email. They, they know. Definitely. I have to mention my favourite grill, Graham, that I think I have talked about on the high low before, possibly 25 times, which I think sums up the entire spectrum of the British sensibility in one anecdote, which was a woman who wrote in complaining about a neighbour on her cul-de-sac who the woman writing in had painted her door a very unusual colour um, for the first time since she'd moved there. And then the next day, her neighbour painted her door the exact same shade. And I don't think there was one ounce of sympathy from any listener for the woman who wrote in. <laughs> but mind you, don't you find those, I those are, I think, the problems I dread the most, either on the radio or when I used to do the Telegraph, because you're stuck with neighbours. There's not, I mean, mostly you read those letters and kind of think, oh, move, try again. <laughs> because yeah. this is a dud house. This house is cursed because those people live next door. And, you know, I, I remember years ago, um, you know, when friends first started buying flats and it was, you know, just unbelievable that, you know, you knew someone who owned a flat. And, and some people would buy a flat 
And the people upstairs, the people downstairs, sometimes both, would just be so noisy and awful and antisocial. Mm. Or da-da. And you just, I mean, you your heart broke for them. And those are the sorts of problems where you kind of think, I'm not sure there is a solution to that. You're just living in deep shit now for the rest of your life. I think they should have all fallen like dominoes and everyone should have painted their door. So if one person changes the colour of the door, like very Stepford Wives, it's got to be universal. God, that would freak you out if you moved somewhere and that happened. Well, I remember when we lived in Bandon in County Cork, um, these uh, Canadians uh, moved into a bungalow uh, further down the road. So already very exotic that um, that they moved there. And then the bungalow next door to them uh, got sold. And it turned out it was their neighbours from Canada <gasps> who had followed them. Oh, my gosh. Like, that would freak you out, wouldn't it? Were they pleased about Were they friends? It depends well, on the relationship, were, doesn't it? They were kind of friends, but at the same time, they didn't expect them to follow them around the world. You know, <laughs> like, make friends That's with the new neighbours. Good, isn't it? Yeah, I, like, I, I, remember, I might use that in a book. <laughs> you announced this month that after 10 years, you will be stepping down from your Radio 2 show. By no means can we dare to compare the high-low to your radio show. But in a moment of neat symmetry, this is our penultimate episode before we bring our weekly show to an end. Well done. There, You didn't cry. Your voice didn't crack at all. <laughs> oh my God, Graham, you should have heard me doing the intro. I had to do about 25 takes. Um, but yeah, we know what a bittersweet thing that can be. We're currently processing it. We're moving through it as we record. Can you tell us more about why you decided to call it a day? Well, what's weird is I, I mean, I sort of, I'm calling it a day really too, but then I'm going to Virgin and I'm doing Saturday and Sunday there which was so not in my mind at all. Um, I was perfectly happy at Radio 2 doing my Saturday morning show. In fact, what I was thinking was that, you know, in a couple of years, I'd probably just knock it on the head um, and and stop it entirely because I have been doing it a long time. And, you know, it's more or less the same show every week. And, and, And so that was all that was going on in my head was that I was going to maybe stop. And then I did uh, an interview with Chris Evans uh, on his breakfast show at Virgin. And he was sort of teasing me and saying, oh, come, you should join Virgin, da, da, da. Now, have you been in the Virgin Radio offices, studios? No, I haven't. <laughs> well, you should. They're lovely. And <laughs> uh, and you can see my house from <laughs> from the studio. So I... I was sort of thinking, oh, actually, this would be, you know, this is very nice here. And Chris seems so happy. I mean, just like a, I mean, just so happy. So I think that's all very nice. But then I kind of thought nothing about it. Anyway, but Virgin got in touch and they sort of muted this idea of doing Saturday and Sunday. And, and I always thought at Radio 2 it would be good to be stripped across the weekend, you know, sort of own the weekend. Mm. And I do, I, I, I think in a way, what happened was I was, at my age, I was so flattered that someone was trying to, you know, somebody wanted me, somebody wants me, uh, that I thought, yeah. And it just seemed exciting. It just seemed um, exciting to have a new challenge. And also, I think it was something to do with uh, the COVID and lockdown and the whole thing where you suddenly realise how lucky we are to have jobs. Mm. And so the idea of working less 
was far less appealing at the end of 2020 mm. than it was at the beginning of 2020. Um, yeah. And That's so I kind of thought, how good to be busy and, and you know, and also have a big challenge because you know, Radio 2, I've got a, you know, really massive audience there. It's not going to get bigger at Radio 2. I mean, Claudia, maybe <laughs> she may make it bigger, but I think I'd gone about as far as I could go. Um, whereas at Virgin, you know, I don't, I'm, I, I imagine their weekend audience isn't huge. So it's it's got to be an uphill thing. I've got to, you know, I've got to work harder, try harder. It's it's a challenge. It'll keep me interested in a way that I probably wouldn't have been if I'd stayed at Radio 2. Probably at Radio 2, I might have started sounding a bit bored and then the audience would have fallen away and it would have all ended horribly. This way, I'm just, you know, vanishing. So you're doing it mainly for the commute? <laughs> Honestly, I can't tell you. The commute is so lovely. And there's a special way it's I can go It's not the personal where... challenges, it's the commute. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, less of a personal challenge because of the commute. Um, and, there's an... <laughs> and I can avoid the hill if I go via London Bridge. So it's... Uh... <laughs> and you touched on there, Claudio Winkleman's going to be taking over your Radio 2 show. Have you had a kind of celebratory passing of the baton or has it just been a bit of a sort of... Um, you know, over Zoom. Sort oh, of we did. We did a few texts, and uh, actually, she's on my chat show to talk about her book. She is a really good choice. She's a really good choice, and I think she'll fit into that radio too. I mean, she's she's done shows on radio too already. So, but I think that's Saturday morning. She'll fit in there absolutely perfectly. Your TV chat show for the BBC has now been running for thirteen years. Am I correct? I think so. I it's, I always go back to the beginning. I always go back to Channel Four days, and that's ninety eight. So we've been doing basically chat shows since ninety eight in various years. forms. Yeah. I have always wanted to ask you every time I watch it, and I sort of can't believe I now have the opportunity to ask Uh-oh. you. But no, 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 don't worry. Nothing, nothing weird. But every time I guffaw out loud at what a celebrity has said we must off our cap to Miriam Margulies at this point <laughs> oh yes that was before I was a lesbian I was just um, <laughs> I was sorting myself out yes and um, as you do at, at, at university and I was on my bike because we we cycled over the cobbles I would imagine <laughs> dike on a bike and uh, And we stopped at the traffic lights and I turned, I looked to the left or the right, as it, whatever it was, and there was a car, an open car with an American soldier inside and something crazy took hold of me then. You know that feeling. I've got it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, would you like to follow me to my college and I'll suck you off? <laughs> I think the absolutely filthy are my favourite celebrities, but I've always wanted to ask you, I bet you're going to be very boringly discreet here, but do you have any favourite celebrity interviews from over the years that can be weird, wonderful or terrible that you could share? Um, I mean, Miriam is a favourite. We do love Miriam, uh, but we have to use her sparingly. She's our kind of, she's our sort of break glass in case of emergency. Sometimes we'll be, we'll be looking at a couch, we'll be looking at, a, at the makeup of a couch and someone will go, Miriam? 
because <laughs> it is like it is like putting a pin on a grenade and throwing it on a sofa. So not everyone, not everyone can handle uh, <laughs> Miriam, but I adore her. But we do have. I mean, I, in an ideal world, she'd be on every week. But we have to kind of use her sparingly, uh, kind of to you know. When you that's what makes her special. Um, and then there's the kind of the big big stars who are always exciting it kind of doesn't matter what they say like a, a tom hanks or a tom cruise or will smith or whatever they bring with them a kind of excitement it's sort of tangible you know the 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 audience are so excited that a star that big is in a room with them and and even i as a host with those people, I never, because normally, you know what it's like, you meet a famous person and they're famous for, I don't know, like 30 seconds, 40 seconds. And then they're just some woman or some man and there you go. And they've got nose hair or, <laughs> you know, their labels out or whatever. But those big stars, I never quite get over them. They they remain film stars throughout the show. Um, so I, I do enjoy those ones. Um, who else? Uh, did, did, did. I mean, there's lots of kind of little moments. Who is in Destiny Child who isn't Beyonce? Kelly Rowland. Kelly Rowlands. Uh, Kelly Rowlands told a story. Um, and like, you look it up on YouTube. But as, the way I remember it is that Kelly Rowlands, Rowlands told a story about swimming with a dolphin. <laughs> and But I think she didn't know that somehow she had wanked the dolphin off in <laughs> in swimming with it. She ended up covered in a strange white liquid. <laughs> Which was she riding? She, Not the top. Well, no, she told she told she told I think she was holding on, if you know what I mean. What to the fin? Uh-oh. Or, or to something. She was yeah. she had, she just put her hand out. And uh, and and she was so sweet and innocent. We didn't, we sort of didn't, like the audience was really laughing and the other people on the sofa were really laughing. We were like, who's going to tell her? <laughs> oh, she didn't She's wanked off a dolphin. But I, I, she she was unaware that she'd done it. She just oh thought it was God. a mysterious discharge. That, <laughs> that oh, my God. Do you know what? I do not, I do not wish that on anyone, but I do feel like maybe that serves humans right for swimming with bloody dolphins. Oh, have you watched the um, the videos on YouTube? No. Oh, Google, uh, I, what, I don't know what you Google, sort of either Humpy Dolphin or Amorous Dolphin, <laughs> da, da, da. but it's lots of, um, mostly women, mostly women sitting on the edge of swimming pools or, you know, those kind of world of sea world things. And um, and it's dolphins jumping on them and really going for it. I mean, it's disturbing. Um, but as you say, uh, you kind of think that's karma. That's karma right there. That's totally. Karma in fish form. There is, sorry to move it on from kind of <laughs> Aquarian masturbation. I don't even know if that's the right term. But there's such a winning formula in you having these incredibly famous stars who normally, you know, you have to speak to them through kind of about 20 different people. And then having often quite a bewildered looking English comic. Like it's just such a magical formula. And sometimes the interaction is so seamless. And at other times you can see them kind of sizing each other up like they're just these different species of dogs. I mean, I suppose they are. They are. And also, I think because in the end, you know, everyone's sort of 
media trained and I'm also I'm kind of you know I, you're told you know don't ask them about this and also I don't want to ask them about something you don't want to talk about because then you've just got a mm. grumpy person sat on the sofa and the kind of the show's ruined so you know I want to keep them happy so they're going to be you know, whatever I ask them they're going to be able to handle it but I think in the show where they are revealed is exactly what you're describing they're revealed in what makes them laugh? What shocks them? Are they interested in other people or are they just looking at themselves on the monitor throughout? Um, you know, it's those sorts of things where actually you see slightly behind uh, the, the screen or the curtains. What was it like recording that chat show over lockdown? Is it, I mean, you did an admirable job. I loved saying Imelda Staunton on the Mac computer with Jim Carter shuffling in like Mr. Carson with a, with a martini for. But that must have been quite hard not having that. You couldn't read the body language so easily. Yeah, it was kind of miserable. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think we, we got a bit better at it. I think we did it for eight weeks, I think. And by the end, you know, the celebrities were better at using Zoom. I was a bit better at using it. Um, and we thought of ways to kind of cheer it up. But in the end, you know... People don't want to see me in my back bedroom <laughs> talking to a laptop. <laughs> that's worse than that's worse than Gogglebox. That's like, he's not even watching television. He's talking to a laptop. So uh, I, I think we were very very happy uh, in the autumn to get back into a television studio. You know, we had a little audience. We've lost that now, but you know, hopefully they'll be back. And I just think. You know, having the, some guests at least physically there makes all the difference. And and to be honest, the reason we did the the lockdown season in the the spring was because we were about to start a new season in the TV studios. So you know, we you know everyone thought they were going to be employed. Everyone thought, oh, we've got jobs now. And so when the BBC said they would take this weird, you know, back bedroom version, and we kind of well, let's let's do it so that we can keep as many people as we can in jobs. Um, and now in the autumn, what's great is, you know, we've got more people in jobs because the, the cameramen are back, the sound men, the lighting guys, the props, art department, all of that. So uh, in really, that's that's what it's for. But I think this version, an audience, it, I think if we'd gone straight from the regular 600 people in the audience, everyone on a sofa, to what we're doing now, people at home would have been, ooh, this is a bit of a letdown. But because we've had me sat in the back bedroom in between <laughs> this seems <laughs> this seems quite close to the old show so I, I this one seems to be going better graham we couldn't have you on and not talk about eurovision in oh. 2009 you, you took over from terry wogan and became the host of the eurovision song contest very sadly this year's contest was cancelled but i just want to know what is that gig like on the night and um, it's fantastic it's just great. I love it because you're kind of in the, you know, the best seat in the house. And 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 also because people are so passionate about Eurovision. Um, and until you go, you don't quite get the enormity of it. Have either of you been to a Eurovision? No, I'd love to go. I'd, I'd love to go, but I'd love to go to a really weird one, which is also where your commentary is. I think it's finest, Graham. Well, also, you have to be, I mean, when we were in um, Azerbaijan, in Baku, you know, I, I 
there were things I'd like to have said, but you kind of thought I might get arrested at the airport or, you know, because it's, you, you are quite vulnerable. You are this mm. one person wandering around. Um, so I, I probably don't say as much as I'd like to on the night. Um, I remember mm. the, I think it was the son-in-law of the president of Azerbaijan was the interval act. And he was lowered on a rope <laughs> out of the stadium. The stadium, which they'd, they, they cleared homes like people who had been living where the stadium was and they just knocked bulldozed all those down built this oh big stadium God. which presumably has never been used since and um and the interval was the president's son-in-law uh, on a rope being lowered down going to sing a song and he was chewing gum <laughs> really <laughs> it's show business love like spit your gum out before you start. <laughs> that's so awful it's not just the nepotism it's the fact that he's literally dancing in their homes that's just to watch that or to not watch it because you haven't got a tv anymore oh my yeah God. exactly your television's gone you're looking through a neighbor's window yeah God. <laughs> you've been working in entertainment for over three decades what have been some of the biggest changes both for you working but in the industry at large as well I'm very lucky in that I worked at a time when there wasn't social media you know that's when I was you know because when I look back at, you know, the stuff we did on, on Channel 4 when we started, you know, I'm really glad that those shows aren't tweets, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I would have been cancelled uh, several times over. Um, and it's, and it, I think that's kind of the, not the biggest change in a way, it's just the biggest journey is, is you know, comedy and audiences and what people want to see and what people will laugh at. You know, I think when we started back in 98, um, comedy was quite cruel. That kind of, those kind mm. of roast jokes were kind of big. And, you know, we really went for it. You know, we, you'd pick targets and you'd just go after them and you'd do the jokes relentlessly. And, you know, those, that's really uncomfortable. If I happen to see an old club, clip or something, it's, it's really horrible uh, to watch those now. And, and people talk about, oh, you know, the comedy police or political correctness. And actually, I don't think it is that. I think it's the, the mood of the time. I think an audience yeah. tells you what they want to laugh at. I think if I went out at the beginning of my show now and did, you know, a really, you know, cruel, whatever, savage monologue about something, an audience would recoil. They, do, they don't want to see it. They certainly don't want to see me do it. And I have a funny feeling they don't really want to see anyone doing it. But that will change, you know, it, it will, it will go the other way. And, you know, our, our tastes will change. And I just think that's good because it challenges you to kind of move with the times. It challenges you to kind of think, okay, I'm, I'm not sort of going to pick on someone for laughs. I've got to think of something else to say or do that's funny. And, you know, it forces you to hopefully be a bit cleverer, a bit more circumspect mm. about what, what you can do to make people laugh. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's something that I think about a lot. The fact that when I was growing up, you know, until very recently, in most households, what you saw on TV or maybe what your parents were laughing about, unless you were in a very progressive household, all the punchlines are punchlines that we're now considering whether it's cruel or not. It's someone who's overweight, it's a man who's effeminate, you know, it's someone speaking English in a foreign accent. And these are all things that 
very suddenly now feel like not only are they not that fu- that funny and not that sensitive, but just not that clever. And I think that unlearning and thinking more creatively can only be an amazing thing. Yeah, I think it's it's got to be good for people um, because it, it's because it's your first port of call. You know, kind of like what can I say here? Oh, I'll say that. And it's just, it is it's a lazy kind of comedy sort of knee-jerk thing and far better to kind of pause and and think about something um but really hard and you know and in a way that's why we do very 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 few jokes on the show now there's hardly any monologue or anything like that now because it's just really hard to write and really hard to do because whatever you do and also because you know we're old so the writers i use are old and my producer's old and (laughs) There's probably if we if we hired a young person, they might they might tell us how to do it. But uh, we find it easy just to stop. <laughs> that was our clever rea- that was our clever reaction to the changing times of comedy. Let's just not do it. But in, but in your vision, but your vision, you know that again that has changed. I think some people rail against that. I don't rail against it. I think it's a good thing um, because, like I say, it 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 forces me to to look again at your vision and kind of go, okay, I've got to think of something uh, cleverer than that <laughs> to, to make a joke about. Writing a novel feels like an opposite craft to making a TV show or a radio show in a lot of ways. It's solitary, it can be very long-term and slow. Do you enjoy the balance of both of those jobs or is there increasingly one that you prefer? Um. Well, I mean, because novel writing is a relatively new thing to me. I only started that in my 50s. So um, I do really enjoy that. But then it's kind of my new toy. Um, Equally, I'm aware that I think most of that enjoyment is because, as you say, I'm doing it in parallel with something else. Um, You know, TV and radio, um, even even a podcast, there's a slight uh, production through committee. You know, people have ideas, people talk, you've got to book a guest, you've got to, you know, it, it involves other people and you've got to listen to other people. So annoying. Um, whereas in a, in a novel, certainly for the first, you know, whatever of it, it's just you. I mean, then you have to give it to editors and people and then people will have opinions. But essentially, it's just you and you can craft that world and make those characters and... I really enjoy that. But I think if, if that's all I did, if I was just trapped in a room all day, every day, I'm kind of going, oh, book, um, I think I might tear my hair out and go a bit do lally crazy. So I think it's 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 good to have both. Um, but sort of books are my refuge from kind of creation by committee. Well, you may call novel writing your new toy, but your books read as if you've been writing for decades. Graham, thank you so much for coming on the show. We have a million more questions we'd like to ask you, but you're a busy man and we must let you go. Okay, I was just gonna say um, thank you very much. And you know, you've got one more podcast to do. Um, So good luck. Um, At Radio 2, one of the reasons I'm not sorry to be leaving is because uh, of COVID, you've got to climb six flights of stairs to get to the studio. (laughs) It's all about the commute, isn't it? It really is. Well, that's, I mean, after having cycled in, it takes half an hour to cycle in. And then I get, and then I'm faced by six flights of chairs. At the top, I'm like kind of Robert Redford in Barefoot in the Park. I'm just gas, gasping. 
so yes, so hopefully your your last podcast will be a joy and you won't cry too much and get snot on your microphone. <laughs> Home Stretch by Graham Norton is published by Hodder and is out now. Thank you so much, Graham. Thank you for listening to the High Low. I just wanted to end this episode by saying that I know for some of our listeners this will be a sad episode and we just want to say thank you for your loyalty and your love and you know we're sad as well but as we said we know that this is the right decision and we are so excited about next week's episode and our big Christmas show so please do write into the Hilo the Hilo show at gmail.com to help us form our Nostalgia Fest of our grand finale next week. And please do book your tickets now for our big Christmas show. Some people might be very relieved as well. <laughs> so <laughs> bye-bye to all of those people as well. <laughs> we'll speak to you next week. It's the last time I'm going to do that. Oh, don't. I'm going to cry. Speak to you next week, guys. Bye. Listen, baby. Ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide.